And to all those who have wondered if America's beacon still burns as bright, tonight we proved once more that the true strength of our nation comes not from the might of our arms or the scale of our wealth, but from the enduring power of our ideals, democracy, liberty, opportunity, and unyielding hope. Welcome to Achieve Great Things. This is episode 17. We're back from vacation and excited to this week talk with Mark Redding-Smith, who is from the Sikh Coalition. Uh, he, he rightly corrected my pronunciation. You'll hear me say the Sikh Coalition, but it's actually Sikh. Um, they're an organization that does a lot of really interesting work, and um, not surprisingly in this time, they're, they're doing even more and, and needing to do even more. So I really hope you enjoy the conversation. Uh, if you like what you hear and achieve great things, please uh, review us on iTunes and also spread the word. Um, send this to friends, colleagues, um, other communicators that you know in your network. We'd love to get this um, even further out there and get even more great guests. And and on that note, if you have ideas for guests who should come on the show, let me know and send an email to podcast at hadaway.com. Really excited to be back and hope you enjoy this conversation with Mark and we'll see you next week. So I'm here with Mark Redding-Smith, who's the Senior Director of Communications and Media at the Seek Coalition. And uh, Mark and I were just comparing comparing backgrounds about both being um, or having Midwest roots and, and being fans of uh, a, a very, very re- currently bad baseball team. So, <laughs> hey, Mark. Hey, RJ. It's, uh, it's great to be uh, uh, doing this with you. And uh, uh, yes, it is, it is a darn shame uh, that we share a love uh, for, for a very bad baseball team at this point. Yeah, and just, just so people aren't, aren't left in the dark, that that team is the Detroit <laughs> Tigers. But um, So, Mark, I know we, we're going to get to kind of talking about some of the communications-related stuff that, that we always cover on this podcast, but it'd be great to hear a little bit about your background, how you got to where you are, and, um, and then we'll get into some more uh, discussion. RJ, absolutely. Um, I guess I should start uh, the fact that I come from a family of journalists. Um, my mom was... Uh, an executive producer for Peter Jennings at ABC News. Uh, my stepmom uh, was an anchor for CNN International. And then my dad was an international television correspondent uh, for a British television network called ITV News. So oh, wow. journalism uh, uh, from, an, from a very early age was a part of my DNA. And as, as much as I tried to run from it, of course, what did I do right after college? Um, I moved to, uh, to Washington, D.C. and worked for the founder uh, of the Center for Public Integrity, um, which I'm not sure if you're familiar, uh, at the time was the founding watchdog, uh, yeah. nonprofit watchdog journalism center, uh, in the country. And it, ProPublica has done an awesome job of sort of replicating that model in recent years. Um, but so I, I went to DC in 2005 and worked for Charles Lewis, um, and spent the better part of four years working on an in-depth, uh, investigation into every false statement made by top Bush administration officials in the lead up to the, uh, war in Iraq. Um, and, while that project was an incredible experience, it went really well. I think after four years of that, I, I sort of decided that um, I either wasn't going to be lucky enough. Uh, I certainly didn't think I was good enough to carve out a career in journalism. So I did what uh, many uh, uh, highly privileged white guys do when they don't know what to do next. And I decided to uh, look into going to law school. Um, and during that time, 
and this is around 2009. Um, uh, during that time, I sort of sat the LSATs and deferred for a year. I also decided to take that year and figure out if there was another way to use my journalism background and apply that to progressive issues um, that I really cared about. Um, and eventually opted out of going to law school and went and took a job with a brand new startup at the time called Rethink Media. Yeah, and Rethink Media is an awesome organization. You're, are you you familiar with Rethink, RJ? Yeah, we've done some um, work here ahead of with them. Work, yep, absolutely. I was going to say it's been it's been several years, but uh, I, I remember some of that work. And Rethink is designed to provide uh, collaborative communications tools um, and support to coalitions of organizations working on progressive policy issues. And in my case, uh, I worked on national security and human rights issues that were directly impacted by 9-11. So government surveillance reform, accountability for torture, closing Guantanamo, um, and racial profiling issues specifically impacting the Muslim, Arab, South Asian, and Sikh communities. Uh, so yeah, for about five years, um, I had the privilege of providing messaging support, media trainings, analysis, and then obviously direct communication support to nearly 50 civil rights organizations, both big and small, all across the United States. Um, nice. And while I loved, loved my time at Rethink Media, I figured at some point um, it would be really valuable for me to step inside a civil rights organization and, and learn how to manage that work from the inside. So in late 2014, I joined uh, the Sikh Coalition, which is the largest Sikh uh, civil rights organization in the United States. Um, and I should stop right there and sort of say, while many call it Sikh, um, it is actually, in fact, Sikh. Uh, okay. So you'll hear me pronounce it Sikh uh, from here <laughs> forward. Um, but the Sikh Coalition was a former client of mine um, at Rethink Media. Um, and I'm sure you'll remember back in 2012, uh, there was that horrible uh, hate crime shooting at a, a sick house of worship in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. And mm -hmm. I provided uh, I, I provided the, the organization and the community at large about eight weeks of rapid response support. And so a special relationship was sort of formed then. And, and when it was time to, to go uh, work inside inside a civil rights organization, uh, I, I made that leap in late 2014. And that brings me to where I am today. Um, the SIC Coalition currently works on a ton of different issues, advocacy issues. Um, but some of our primary focuses are related to combating and preventing hate, um, anti-bullying, employment discrimination, and of course, issues around uh, racial profiling. Awesome, diverse career. So congratulations, because that's a pretty cool... Pretty cool path. The uh, the rethink media stuff is is really interesting, and um, we've actually we've done some work on sort of countering Islamophobia um, yeah. with, with with funders. So there's some you know I'm sure similar similar ideas there, but a totally different um, different perspective, obviously. But I'd love to hear. I mean, w one of the questions that that we always ask, which I, I shared with you before, is just. What have you learned about, I guess, over the past year or so, what have you learned about America and about the way we communicate both as a country but also as, as progressives? How many how many folks have you now asked this question to, RJ? <laughs> I think maybe like 20 or 25. Okay, so there's absolutely no chance that I'm going to say anything, uh, 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 you know, groundbreakingly original or smart here, uh, which, which, takes, which takes the pressure off. Um I mean, I'll, I'll talk about the election specifically, and I, I, I think I have two big takeaways. I think first is, I think we learned a really simple and very difficult lesson, again, about the importance of messaging in this past election. Um, specifically, you know, developing uh, a durable message that connects you with your audience and persuades them to move in the direction of your way of thinking. Um, and I, 
you know, I think whether you were the Clinton campaign stumping in Iowa in January 2016 or delivering the acceptance speech at the DNC six months later, um, I think for all of us who sort of pay close attention uh, in the progressive community to messaging, I think it's fair to say that nobody necessarily quite understood why she wanted the job why it had to be her at this moment in history and why Americans who are certainly not already in her camp should be excited for her to be our next president. Um, and so while I think the Clinton campaign had the infrastructure, ground game, qualifications, policy expertise, and undeniable experience, um, I, I think it's fair to wonder uh, if the foundational message that was uniquely her own that inspired people was there from the beginning. And certainly, I think when you looked across the political aisle and asked what Trump stood for, why he was running, and what messages were mobilizing his voter base, uh, I don't think we had any of those same questions. And, you know, while we were all ultimately flabbergasted, um, I think that his messages uh, took him to the White House. I don't think we were confused about what he stood for. Um and, you know, I should be clear, RJ, I, I'm not saying that messaging cost the Clinton campaign uh, the White House. Uh, obviously, there were emails, Russia, 200 years of sexism, uh, uh, to name just a few contributing factors. But I think from a communication standpoint, it really reminded a lot of us that a lot rides on your ability um, to establish clear messages that move undecided from one camp to another um, to help yeah. you win. So. Yeah. Um, you know, whether that's in my line of civil rights work, where, you know, on a Tuesday, I might be working to persuade one district attorney somewhere uh, to prosecute hate crime charges, uh, or to the next presidential candidate looking to move, I don't know, 20,000 voters in a suburb of Philadelphia, I think we're always looking to develop coherent messages that move our, our goals closer to winning. So I think that's my first takeaway. Uh, if I had a second takeaway, and, you know, of course, I think it jumped out to all of us is that it really is enormously challenging to combat and counteract messages that tap into people's anger and fear. Um, and for the last decade, you know, my communications work is focused on pushing back on policies related to national security and human rights. And, you know, so whether that's been pointing out that torture is ineffective or Guantanamo doesn't make us safer, or racial profiling doesn't work. Um, I've watched many, I think, in the progressive movement, including myself, try uh, and fail to intellectualize that counterargument to fear. Uh, and I think this this election was certainly one on that platform. Um, and I don't think, you know, I'm, I'm talking about the whole of all of us. You know, I don't think any of us did a great job of fully tapping into understanding what that fear was about. Yeah, that's those are two really, really good points. And I think um, being, you know, just having an aspirational or, or a, a consistent even message from the beginning is something that um, I think we all are hoping um, is a lesson that people learn, especially people who are interested in running for president and, and running for higher office. And man, there's, there's so much we could go into on, on that front, but let, let's, let's move a little bit toward, um, where we are now. What do you see as the biggest, um, some of the biggest challenges for, for communicators, um, at this point? Not to, to jump in, in too many different directions. Right. But I mean, uh, from my vantage point, uh, you know, we're living through a period of political crisis that has dire consequences for literally millions of Americans, whether we're talking about immigration, health care, women's rights, climate change, national, you know, national security. Uh, many of our constitutional rights and basic values are under assault. Um, however, I think it is on all of us, uh, especially uh, uh, as it relates to sort of uh, professional communication mm -hmm. to view every crisis, and I do think we are living through a crisis, 
um, through the lens of finding opportunities. And maybe the best way to answer this question would be to give you a specific specific example, RJ. Since 9-11, Sikh Americans, because of their distinct articles of faith, including, of course, the turban and beard, have been identified with terrorism, right? So the yeah. first deadly hate crime in America, um, if you can believe it, um, occurred just four days after 9-11, and it was actually on a Sikh gas station owner uh, named Balbir Singh Sodi, who was murdered uh, in cold blood uh, outside his gas station in Mesa, Arizona. Uh, the shooter um, beforehand had, had told his friends that he wanted to go kill some towel heads. Um, next yeah. month, I mentioned at the beginning, on August 5th, you know, we'll mark the five-year anniversary of the Oak Creek shooting. Um, which at the time in 2012, before Charleston happened, uh, was the deadliest act of violence in an American house of worship in nearly 50 years. So I, I share this all because for a generation of sick Americans, you know, they've lived in this very real fear um, in which, you know, uh, if you were sick in America today, you were literally hundreds of times more likely to be the victim of a hate crime than the average American. Yeah, However, crazy. yeah. Uh, and Just to live like that, I mean, every day is, 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 is crazy to think about. Totally. And I, I raise this because, you know, now with hate crimes on the rise in communities nationwide, um, there is actually some attention being paid to this issue like never before. So initiatives for years that our organization had, had been trying to get off the ground from grassroots Know Your Rights forums to community security initiatives to better hate crime tracking data, um, you know, all of those things are gaining traction in a way that they weren't before. And of course, you know, RJ, there's also now this sort of new groundswell of media interests um, in better under understanding the challenges that face the sick American community in this area. And so for me, it is an opportunity to jump in and potentially educate millions of Americans about the sick faith community and traditions in a way that simply wasn't there before this crisis. So you know, if I'm thinking about the fact that hate groups and hate crimes are on the rise, um, of course, that's a real security threat to many Americans. But for the first time, this is also um, a moment when many Americans are paying attention to the problem and committing to becoming part of the solution. So I think this is, you know, as a, uh, a, a professional communicator, I have to look at this um, as an opportunity that presents endless opportunities um, for for us to tap into. And let me just give you one related example yeah. that I think really Please. highlights that point. We've been thinking for the last six months about how do we tap into that groundswell of new, you know, politically engaged Americans who share our progressive values and now maybe for the first time ever are inclined to act on those values for the first time. And um, over the last eight weeks, we had this awesome opportunity to partner with a couple organizations to pitch network executives and showrunners on the merits of bringing sick actors and characters to primetime television. Um, so, RJ, I'm sure you can imagine the long-term impact that that could have for the sick community uh, or really any impacted community. If Americans actually associated a brown man who wears a turban and beard with their favorite comedy on CBS or top-rated drama on Netflix, um, and, you know, we can only imagine the doors that that would sort of open for advocacy on the issues that are near and dear to religious minorities across the United States. So, yeah, and, and that's like, not to interrupt, but that's, um, that's sort of the, a similar attack that the LGBT community took with GLAAD and other organizations, right? Getting gay actors on TV was like a pretty big opening for, for the whole movement. 
hundred percent. And, you know, whether we succeed in this season or not, I'm, I'm feel fairly confident that the groundwork's been laid for future success there. And look, I, I cite that example because it's a recent one. It's been something I've been working on in recent weeks, but I, if I'm totally candid with you, RJ, I, I don't think that opportunity would have been there a year ago. Um, yeah. I don't think we would have been able to get into the room to make those pitches. Um, but that interest and enthusiasm uh, uh, and opportunities now exist. And so I think, yeah, I think um, from the perch that I sit on um, uh, to the perch that you sit on, I think we, we have to be constantly thinking about um, those sorts of opportunities that were not there previously and, and how we can run with them in a way that, you know, might not be there uh, uh, if if the political climate swings again in three years. It, it's interesting because I was going to ask you, like, what are, what are some positive things that, that you're seeing or, or some opportunities? But it's interesting to think about the, the fact that you, you feel like the fact that this kind of extreme swing and extreme administration that we have has has made people a little bit more aware of some of the, I don't know if I would say opportunities, but some of the dangers maybe in in how our national discourse is going which is hopefully going to open up opportunities to improve it right yeah and i and i'm glad you you know i I definitely don't want to be flippant with the word opportunities and let's make no mistake about it no mistake about it i mean hate crimes are on the rise nationwide and i think I, i speak for everyone at our organization and many others which is you know uh preventing hate is our top priority however you know i'm also conscious of the fact that uh, I have reporters at, uh, uh, at news outlets that I've been banging on their doors for the last three years to get them to pay attention to this who are now coming my way uh, wanting to examine this issue more closely. And, you know, um, this Oak Creek anniversary in a couple of weeks is a great case in point. Uh, a year ago, I never would have uh, uh, carved out or uh, a significant amount of our time to prioritize the anniversary from a communication standpoint with members of the media. Mm-hmm. Um, but this year I am, um, because unfortunately, uh, the issue remains so salient. Uh, uh, and there's a lot of uh, potential ground to cover in terms of educating uh, the American public about who this community is in the process. Tell us more about what you all are up to at the coalition and, and what kinds of things you think, especially in the context of what we've been talking about, opportunities or, or moving forward. You, you cited a couple examples. Are there other things that you, you all are working on that you think will give people either you know, inspiration for how other organizations can take advantage of what's happening right now or things that are just generally positive because we're always right. in need of that? I think it's a great um, it's a great question, and um, you know I think we're we're doing what I'm sure uh, uh, you're seeing with with many other organizations, big and small, like the ACLU sort of do, which is, you know, how can we figure out how to, you know, uh, uh, tap into our own community of supporters, uh, interest and enthusiasm, and uh, and mobilize in a way that we've never done before, um, and so. You know, we are launching this year several sort of grassroots initiatives that are really aimed at empowering uh, uh, the community at the local level uh, to drive change, right? Um, I think we have to be pretty realistic in this political environment that at least at the federal level, the opportunities might be far and few and far between to, you know, push a, a progressive policy agenda proactively forward. But that's not necessarily true at all uh, at the grassroots level. Um, and so, you know, several of the things we're doing are, are certainly designed uh, around that. Um, another sort of one, which you sort of think about targeting 
uh, uh, different constituencies and making a difference. Um, one of the big things that we're pushing is, you know, bigger picture as it relates to sort of educating the American public on the sick community is um, really working to work, uh, really working with educators at the state level uh, uh, to see if we can get, um, you know, educators to acknowledge the sick community, the sick history, uh, the sick contributions, the American fabric for the last 125 years in history curriculum. Nice. Um, and so we're working right now on a sort of state-by-state -state initiative um, that is really aimed at sort of um, ensuring that, you know, at some point from K to 12, uh, you, if you are a sick in a classroom somewhere in America, at some point uh, your classmates are going to be taught uh, uh, something about uh, uh, the community and the contributions that you've made to our country. And that remains so important and comes back to sort of combating and preventing hate, RJ, in the sense that, um, you know, this all starts at such a young age and, and is sort of formulated in the classroom uh, on the playground. So some of that work remains sort of integral and pivotal, and we're seeing a lot of opportunities to move some of that work forward right now, too. Nice. Yeah, super important stuff. I'm glad glad you guys are doing all that. I know you're, you're hard at work. There's a, there's a lot going on. Um, what's, what's sort of one thing, just last, last question here, what's sure. one thing that you would leave people with, um, either an idea to consider or, or an insight to, that they might be able to use in their, in their own work? What's something you'd leave people with? I think anybody who's ever worked with me uh, or ever uh, had the joy RJ of sitting in on a communications training that I've given uh, will will roll their eyes when they hear this. But I think the best advice I can give any professional communicator is to position yourself as a resource um, first before ever expecting to become the source. Um, and I think what I mean by that is, you know, whether you're working with a reporter, a constituent, a public official, or anybody in between, I, I take great pride in 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 my team always going the extra mile to facilitate whatever they need, um, even when there is no immediate direct benefit to our day-to-day -day communications work. Um, and I guess if there's one thing I've learned over the years, and it's now been, I guess, a, a decade plus, is you know, so much of uh, my long-term communication success has been built on those sort of relationships that often started by me uh, not looking for anything from those folks in return. And when you do that, I think when you sort of position yourself as a resource rather than the source, uh, you build a great deal of trust and credibility that sort of pays uh, uh, tremendous uh, returns uh, uh, over time. Um, so I guess that would be my, my, my one piece of sage advice to anyone out there listening. Excellent. That is great. Um, this is really helpful and, and really good to hear what you all are up to. And I, I hope people are... Um, thinking similarly that, that that it's really great to see that there's some positivity coming out of you know the situation we're in and hopefully people are seeing that it's we have to take better care of our neighbors and and think more about you know people who are who might be under under attack or criticism or whatever and it's great that you're that you're doing this work so thanks for the work you do well, thank you, RJ. I, I would say um, working, I, I'm a uh, non-sick myself, but working for a sick organization, uh, there's the underlying uh, spirit called uh, Chardi Kala, uh, which means eternal optimism. Um, and uh, it's it's foundational to the to the Sikh faith, and it guides the outlook uh, in so many ways. And it's, it's certainly rubbed off on me, for sure. It's we're living in uh, uh, no doubt difficult times, trying times. Um, I'm confident with the outstanding work that organizations like Sick Coalition is doing, and many are doing in the civil rights space, uh, that that we.
we will come out of this uh, uh, this troubled time uh, and hopefully be better for it. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to, to speak with us and, and for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, RJ. I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks again for tuning in to Achieve Great Things. If you like what you hear, subscribe on iTunes and give us a review there. Um, shoot us an email at podcast at hadaway.com if you have thoughts, suggestions, comments. Thank you very much for listening. See you next week. And to all those who have wondered if America's beacon still burns as bright, tonight we proved once more that the true strength of our nation comes not from the might of our arms or the scale of our wealth, but from the enduring power of our ideals, democracy, liberty, opportunity, and unyielding hope.